This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. COVID-19, as we've suggested in recent weeks, magnifies all things visible, but not easily seen. When we live under the blue skies at our the days and the times, we're not held captive by this pandemic. Inequity, whether they come in the form of structural racism, healthcare disparities, or food insecurity, are not easily ignored when the circumstances are standing and screaming at us all day, every day. Recently, Jerry and I invited our esteemed colleague, Dr. Dawn Opal, to the show, and we discussed the most vulnerable population in the crisis, our senior citizens. We we talked about their need and our execution to meet their need with the Senior Quarantine Box Program. These boxes are built in our warehouses and delivered to the senior citizens' doorstep. Today, for this edition of our show, we invited one of our strategic partners to join us in our Everybody versus COVID-19 fight, Dr. Diane Golzinski of the Michigan Department of Education. Diane is the director for the Office of Health and Nutritional Services, and that means she feeds hungry kids at school and beyond. While seniors are our most vulnerable population, students, children, kids, they are our most innocent. That is true whether in the midst of a pandemic or not. Here is something everyone on this show and everyone listening to this show can agree on. There are two words that should never go together, childhood and hunger. Today, we are going to share the amazing work that came together literally over one weekend to feed our students and their families. We will share up-to-the-minute progress in helping our students and their families deal with the loss of face-to-face instruction, thus the opportunity to gain access to meals at school, and what we've learned that will make us all better at creating a food-secure state for all kids across Michigan when the pandemic is passed. Dr. Gozinski, Jerry Brisson, and me, we'll be right back. You come back and be with us. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight here with Jerry Brisson. And Jerry, I'm looking at you on a Zoom call while we record this uh, with Mark Blackwell's great process that he's created here as our producer and i see a semi sitting in your living room (laughs) well doctor the only thing anyone who knows me would wonder is why would you look at me when you don't have to but other than that uh you know i i got my uh my zoom background set up to be Uh, our michigan fitness foundation truck which says eat more fruits and veggies um, it's one of the things that we do is SNAP education, and so uh, that's the semi that's in my background because uh, it's so important, even as we're dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, so much of the food we're getting to families and kids is uh, fresh produce. 
And so, and they love it and they want it and it's been a really effective part of what we do. So for me, that background reminds me of a really important part of our work and uh, you know, it gives me a chance to talk about it on the radio apparently. Well, it's good. You look good in front of that semi. I'm glad it's not in your living room, but I'm really <laughs> happy that, that Diane Kozinski is on our Zoom call and on our show today. Diane, welcome back to Food First Michigan. Thank you so much for having me. So, so, um, so I think that March, March 12th, maybe 12th, 13th, 16th, mm -hmm. one of those dates, we'll live in infamy in all of our minds. We'll know exactly where we were at when somebody says, where were you when they, when they ceased face-to-face -face, uh, classes and education? And so uh, I know where I was at, and I thought immediately, oh boy, here we go. And, um, and it didn't take long till you were talking with our network and with me and with Jerry. Um, so it's great to have you on the show. Tell us where you were at when you got the notice. Thank you. So I, it was about 1045 at night. I got a text message that said, you need to watch the governor's announcement at 11 p.m. And at 11 p.m., that was when I found out that schools had been closed for a three-week period. That was Thursday night, March 12th. You were right on your dates. And then by Friday morning at 11.30, we were on webinars with superintendents and food service directors and preparing as much as we possibly could for the 16th of March, which was the first day that classes were closed to in-person instruction for our Michigan students. Wow. Jerry, where were you? <laughs> well, if it was 11 o'clock at night, I was in bed. There's no question in my mind that's exactly where I was. Anything after 9 o'clock is, is probably that's where I am. Uh, but I can tell you, we knew it was coming. Um, you know, we had, we had kind of gotten whispers that this was likely going to happen. I have uh, two kids still in, one in high school, one in middle school. They were very eager to hear. And I think initially we're like, ha-ha! no school uh, but now that is not at all how they feel they miss their friends they miss their teachers I mean it, it has been a long haul for them but uh, but obviously um, I actually had a, a bunch of meetings set for the next day all of that changed immediately uh, the state of emergency changed it even further and so uh, really since then our goal has been to work with everyone we need to work with to reach as many of the families that are affected by the school closures as possible. In our area alone, it's over 300,000 kids. That's just in the five counties we serve. So across the state of Michigan, Diane, I know it is it is significantly more than that. And, um, and so there's a lot of work to do for these kids and families. Absolutely, 1.5 million public school children across the state of Michigan. Wow, 1.5 million. And, and um, I was reading somewhere, Diane, that um, there's a good number of kids that are eligible in Michigan uh, for free and reduced breakfast and lunch. Correct. So, um, I mean, your team across the state, um, these, these directors of nutritional services in all of our schools are, are really so critical to the food security of these students, these children, uh, as they come to school. So, I mean, that's just got to be super rewarding that's for you and for all of them as well. 
That's right. Our food service directors serve children every day, whether they qualify for the free meals or not. And we know that a good number of our students, over half of our students qualify for free or reduced price meals. And a good number, even though they may not qualify, are still not at the level of food security that we would like to see all kids at. And so they really rely on those healthy, nutritious meals at school to help them be well-fed and ready to learn. Jerry, could you unpack that for us just a minute though? Because we talk about food insecurity and it's kind of like, I think that sometimes folks will go, it's either or. And there are actually levels of, of how we determine food insecurity. So could you unpack that for just a minute? Uh, yeah, put, put the cookies on the right shelf for me. <laughs> well, we'll see if I can do that. Um, so food insecurity, first of all, is um, what it means is that you're not sure if you're going to have all the meals you need. And so food insecurity really addresses not just whether you got the food or not, but the level of attention you have to pay to that problem in your life and how that affects you. You know, it makes you feel anxious and stressed and it, it adds a layer of difficulty for managing your life, right? So some people who are food insecure are actually eventually getting all the meals they need. But on average, a food insecure person in Southeast Michigan is missing three and a half meals per week. So that's just over one full day worth of food. But what really happens is those days all come at the end of the month. So what you see is people have uh, okay time the first two weeks of the month. The third week of the month, they start missing some meals. And a lot of times that's when parents just skip meals so they can feed their kids. But the last week of the month, their whole family might be missing three or four or five whole days where they just don't have any food in the house. So, so when we talk about this issue of food insecurity and the different layers that people can be in, a lot depends on the luck of the draw. Did I get a flat tire this month? No, I have an extra $10 for food. That's great. You know, or did something else Did I have to drive somewhere? Maybe, maybe one of my kids is in gymnastics. And so I have to take that child to a, a gymnastics thing and, oh, shoot, they needed something for it. They needed something for their uniform or they needed something that the school didn't supply. And now that family has fewer resources overall in order to meet the, their whole household budget. And when you think about a kid's life and, and life in school, you know, all their friends get involved in Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and, and you know, and all of the other activities that happen at school. Well, while, while it's most organizations try to help families who are in need, still it's extra time, it's extra cost. So, so what really happens then in the life of a person who's living at or near the poverty line is that how many meals they're missing in a month fluctuates depending on all the other things that are going on in their life. Sometimes they don't miss any meals this month, but sometimes they may actually have 10 days of food that they don't know where it's coming from. And that's a lot of time when we see people coming through pantries. It's when they get to the point where they just can't figure it out on their own. And so they're coming to pantries to get help. And, uh, and that's our network. That's the network of, you know, of churches and other places that are out there that are, you know, really standing in the gap for these families when they're really having these struggles. So what food insecurity really means is I am frequently missing some meals and often missing more meals than what you could miss and not have a really serious health problem. So Diane, we know that if, if students aren't well 
fed, they won't be well read. And that's where you and your team come in to really help educators get the outcomes that they that everybody wants, but especially set the child up for success. That's absolutely right. What was the first thing that people thought of once we heard that schools were going to be closed? It was how will the kids eat? Where will they get their meals? So many kids get their meals at school. So what is that going to look like? Who's going to step up into that hole that's been created? And it was really our school food service directors, as well as our sponsors who help us during the summer when school is closed. Folks like Gleaners Community Food Bank, they have mobile routes that they run in the summer and they stepped up and said, okay, we're going to help fill this gap now that schools are closed. Because we know if the kids experience stress, even at the, at the time we were thinking it was only three weeks that schools would be closed. Right. If the kids were going to be stressed during those three weeks, they would actually have a greater academic slide than if we could fill that gap for them during that time. So we had over 600 different sponsors around the state step up and say, we're going to help fill that gap for these kids during this closure. Wow. So that's great. I, I think a, a great picture of uh, the Michigan Department of Education, the Office of Health and Nutritional Services, and the Food Bank Network coming together and working together yes. to meet the need. So, hey, we got to take a quick break here. Uh, Jerry and Diane are coming back. I'll be back too. You come back and be with us. We're back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Okay, we're back with our guest and friend and partner and colleague. Geez, all those things, Diane. Dr. Diane Gozinski, who is the director for the Office of Health and Nutritional Services at the Michigan Department of Education. And, uh, you know, we we do a lot of stuff together, and it's, it's pretty cool that in the midst of all this, it just, it just really, it just like, hey, Phil, hey, Diane, hey, Jerry, hey, Ken, hey, Kara, hey, hey, hey. And our teams just have come together to address these needs. Really, what I believe, as I said in the monologue, the most innocent, whether we're in a pandemic or not, these children are innocent and should not ever have to struggle and be worried about food. Hunger has to come off of their table and be replaced with access to healthy, nutritious food. Well, there's no doubt about it. And um, it's probably worth talking about um, that the, the, the government machine has a lot of moving parts. And so one of the key aspects of responding to this crisis has been having a clear understanding of how the parts need to move so that everybody can do their piece and make sure that all of our priorities are met. And on, in this case, the priority was clear and imminent. We just have to make sure that these kids and families, depending on these meals, have a way to do it. And so the first layer was just to say to the schools, is there any way that you can continue to do some of your meal services? And a lot of that first pass of how are we going to respond to this was those schools saying, okay, we know we can't have congregate meals because that brings people together and we've got to stay distant. 
So we're going to do grab-and-go meals for families all across the state. And I just want to say that provided a huge and first very clear level of relief. Very clear, very clear. So, Diane, talk about that. You know, what was that like for you as you were going through this process of, okay, I got to start talking to people about what are they going to do and how do we put that together? And I know you created tools and websites and give us a little insight into that. Sure. So my team and I had actually taken all of Thursday, the 12th of March to plan for the possible closure of schools. What would that look like? Which programs needed to step up where? Where did we need to apply for waivers for federal regulations so that we could be sure we reached every single student that was out there? We didn't want a single district to be able to say we don't qualify for a particular program and therefore cannot feed kids at this time. We wanted the ability for everyone to have all of their needs met. And we spent the entire day working through every program, every regulation and making a plan. We were able to start executing that plan the very next day. And it's really true. I mean, as we were watching people on just, you know, feet on the ground, the sense of relief that, okay, okay, there's going to be something. And we were talking with local mayors, and we were talking with local police, and we were talking with, you know, I mean, same thing, the very next day, because, of course, we were trying to set up our food distributions as well, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, so then the schools said we can do grab and go. That's one of the ways that we can do this, right? It was one of the tools. Yes. But one of the things that was amazing to me was how quickly you and your team got the website up. That, ha that had a list for anyone that was interested on what services were happening at any school in the state. So that if you were a family that needed to know, you could know. And I don't remember how long it took, but it seemed to go up very fast. Yeah. It was actually within that first week. We're very lucky to have built incredible partnerships with folks like you and Phil, Dr. Phil at the Food Bank Council, as well as others on the technology side. We have that map available every summer. So we were able to quickly release last year's data, enter the new data for the new year, and have that up within five days of operation. www.michigan.gov slash meetup eatup is where the map can be found, and we update that map twice a day, every day during these closures. It's hugely so helpful. Cool. Yeah, and the United Way, who's also been part of Meetup yes. and Eat Up this whole time, was able to immediately engage their 211 service so that they could be directing people there or their operators could be looking there. And again, you know, I was just really impressed with how quickly. Um, things move so that families at least had some way of knowing where they could go to get food. Now then we get to our network, you know, and our, our food banks across the state that, that said, well, we know that not every family is going to be able to go to school every day or every couple days and get food. And so we started working with you right away on how can we distribute groceries as well as meals. And that's something we've talked about for a long time, but really haven't been able to do. But during this, it was like, you know what, if we're ever going to do it, this is the time. And it has been another tremendously effective way to reach families um, so that whatever their mobility issues might be yes. or their transportation issues, they're able to get a, a, a whole bunch of meals at a time for those kids. 
And so that was another process, though, where we had to get waivers and a clear understanding with the USDA. And Diane, again, you know, just just from your perspective, you know, that came together in what kind of way? It was really just allowing the amazing partners that we work with to look at their own operations and decide what they could handle, what capacity they had for storage, what capacity they had for uh, staffing, and what capacity they had to get meals out to their families and how their families would be able to come and get those meals. I didn't want to dictate that at the state level because every single partner is different. And so if it worked better to put together a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and an entire meal in that way and offer a week's worth of meals, absolutely, we were going to allow that. So as long as the kids were getting food, getting enough food, and it was well-balanced in nutrition, we didn't want to be the government that stood in the way of making that happen. We wanted to allow our partners to use their incredible creativity and make it happen for the kids. So I think there's a couple of backstories there that we probably don't have time to tell in this segment, but I, I know those stories because my team interacts with your team quite a bit, Diane. And there was a couple of calls there where folks uh, might have not agreed with your permission slip, so to speak, <laughs> for your partners to be as creative as we've been. And um, and I think that they they might have saw another side of Dr. Gozinski that they might not have known existed. <laughs> and in my world, we call that advocacy. <laughs> so I think that, you, may, um, you know, you, you probably had to put their wagon in the middle of the road. They were getting a little off to the side a little bit. And you said, nope, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it That's this right. way because of the value that you have, that you were gonna meet the needs of these students and their families. And I appreciate that passion that's in you uh, to stand in the gap for these students. So I, I gotta take a quick break here, but I wanna get you guys back here in just a minute. She's Dr. Diane Kozinski, that's Jerry Brisson, I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're back on Food First Michigan in just a moment. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest and partner in this, uh, this effort to create a food secure state for all of our students and uh, their families. And, you know, we work together a lot, Dr. Gozinski, outside of um, COVID-19. But wow, I mean, I don't know what we do with out each other in COVID-19 because you understand a bit better. I think we've all learned each other uh, and our operations at a little bit deeper level than what we knew before. before. And um, one of the things I think that you came and grasped really quickly was all the food that is in all of the food banks, warehouses across the state is already going someplace. So when the, when the announcement came for the schools to close, and we really had a weekend to pull this strategy together, I think the food banks were all like, okay, yeah, we got to help. We got to do this. But, you know, all this food that's already in our warehouse was scheduled to go someplace else. Right. And now there's going to be kids who need food next week. 
And so you went to bat in this this spirit of advocacy that we ended the last segment with and kind of hammered that home for folks all through um, your administration and other departments of the state. And I want to tell you on air that I deeply appreciate that. And I don't think we'd be as far ahead as we are had you not done that. Oh, thank you very much. Our partnership is really important to us, and we are really all in this together and couldn't do it without each other. So from a food bank perspective, here's where we were sitting. The food supply chain is starting to get rocked pretty hard right away. The grocery stores are running out of food. There's a whole chain of restaurants that are starting to close down. There's a lot of confusion about where is food going to come from and how are we going to get it. We're trying to line up the the food that we needed to distribute to these kids and families. And one of the things we needed was some assurance that we would have some funding to do that because it takes a while to raise money too. And so when the state came forward and said, all right, we're going to do two things for you. The first thing is we're going to get you some upfront money so that you can start getting this food right away to these families. We're, we're just going to do that. The second thing we're going to do is say it's going to be okay from a, from a reimbursement perspective. Once you start distributing this food, we're going to figure out how to make sure you can get reimbursed for those meals that are going to those kids. Um, and we've got a, a program in place when there's an unanticipated school closure that we can bring to the table to help us get this all done officially through the right channels. And we're going to be there for you so that what we could focus on was our job, which was we set up just in Southeast Michigan, 66 new sites over the five counties that we serve, each of which that could serve up to 600 families at a time so that we could make sure that we were focused on how do we get the sites up and running? How do we make sure we have the right food there? What do we do if we run out of food? How do we get an extra truck of food? Uh, If we have too much food, how do we get that food to another site that might be overrun? And the other logistics things that we have to do. But I can tell you, if we didn't have that um, financial security that came from your department and the other parts of the state that needed to be involved and the USDA and the other people that you have relationships that you could say, look, this is what we got to do. It would have taken not only much longer, but to some degree, we would not have known how we could even get it done. So it was such a relief as an administrator uh, and as a, a leader on the ground to have someone who, who could tell us, don't worry about that. We're going to get this covered and you just figure out how, how to do your job. And that is, I mean, I just can't say enough how critically important that was for the timing and the effectiveness of our response on the ground. And Phil, I'm sure you've heard from other food banks as well. All of them, all of them. I mean, Diane standing in the gap for us, you know, um, and it's not that people in other state departments didn't want to help. It's just that they don't understand. They don't, they don't know. And even up until this week, you know, uh, I've still had conversations with people um, throughout the state that not just state government, but throughout the state who really didn't grasp. I mean, even, even some of our federal counterparts said, well, we're not sure that food's really going to be an issue during COVID-19. Well, you know, that took about 48 hours. Yeah. (laughs) So, Diane, I'm sure you had all those conversations a hundred times over. Yes, we certainly did. And one thing that 
My team and I truly believe beyond our value of assuring that all children have access to healthy meals at all times, 365 days a year. The other piece of that is that our role as a state agency is to remove the barriers so that our locals can truly do the work that they do and that they do so well. So that's what we were doing. We were out to smooth the path as much as we possibly could, release the pressure on our locals who were already worried about the kids' faces that they see every day, and make sure that we took away as much pressure as we could. Well, for us, we've looked at it through waves. You know, the first wave was the students and their their families. Um, and how could we really pull this together in a weekend? The second wave has been the senior citizens that we talked about just yeah. recently on the show with Dr. Opal and uh, that quarantine box. And that's been a good partnership between us and the, and uh, Director Gordon at uh, DHHS and his team. And then uh, now the third wave has been um, the, the folks who never negotiated the emergency food network before. The gig worker or the contract worker, the food industry workers, service industry workers, and the employees of small business, all coming to us in these line of cars um, that, that this distribution model that the food banks have created so that everyone is kept as safe as possible, both the public and our teams. And, you know, they're getting this box of highly nutritional food that is, uh, and to see the responses on their faces, the relief that comes with knowing that this box of food is great. It's not a dented can. It's not an unlabeled dented can kind of. It's really good food, high nutritional food, as I say. And then some of the things, Jerry, that you guys are, are allowing to go in and with that box, I mean, fluid milk and produce and other things is just, you know, I think it does. It's important to me because I think we hold the value that the food that you share with someone communicates value, who they are, what they do. And I know, Diane, you and Jerry both share that same value. That's absolutely right. Well, in fact, um, the model that's put out there for how much of what should go into a meal is actually the model we use when we put together the grocery program to begin with because the truth is the USDA has worked really hard on understanding the nutritional contents that a child needs in order to be successful and in order to be healthy, in order to grow um, the way that they should both mentally and physically and probably emotionally too. And so we use that information to help inform what should we be putting in these grocery packages that people are taking home. And that's, again, part of the, the ongoing cooperative work that we do. We support each other because we each have a piece of the expertise that allows us all to do what we do best. And so um, the grocery program matches the, the same ultimate contents of what the school meal program would be so that everyone is on the same page in terms what these of what these kids and families need to get and should have. And so again, that worked very, very well. And and we already had recipes and we already had, you know, things from our other work 
through the through the support that we get through various channels and you know I, I was talking about the snap ed truck that's behind me in my background here but that work for snap ed is involved with that too you know and and helping to really get the community to understand this is what's going to help you feel better this is what's going to um you know maybe help you tackle um the the health challenges you might have in your life and so all this work goes together and it's why we can uh, execute a program so fast. So again, uh, very, very, there's a lot to look back on and say, because of the work we've done, we were able to do the work we did. But we can also look forward and say, this is going to inform the next thing. So as we look at the rest of the summer, and as we look at other school closures, and as we look at next year, we're going to be able to say, here's what we learned by what we did through this that's going to better inform us about what's the right cost and what's the right amount of food and what's the way that families really want and can be most effective in feeding their kids. Diane, we're going to give you the last word on this segment here. Well, I just want to say thank you to all of you, all of our local partners. You truly are feeding the kids. In less than 24 hours, we turned everything on its head. We changed our food service. And in two weeks in March, we served over 8 million meals across the state to kids who were would have otherwise gotten those meals at school. So thank you to all of you, all of your listeners. You really are the reason that the kids have that security. Dr. Diane Gozinski, she is the director for the Office of Health and Nutritional Services at the Michigan Department of Education. And she loves kids and she wants them to have access to food, whether they're in school or out. And we love that and appreciate that about you, Diane. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Jerry and I are back to wrap up this show in just a moment. You come back and be with us too. Jerry, uh, it is, you know, I don't know where we'd be without Diane and her team because uh, they, they, they were in early and, you know, I, we define friendship as someone who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. Well, they certainly walked in in a big way and uh, they advocated from top to bottom to help us get this thing started and meet the need in our community and has continued to do that as well. Well, you know, one of the things that we started the whole show for why do we do food first michigan is because we knew we needed to have conversations with the right people in the right ways so that everyone involved and who could make a difference has a chance to do what they can do to make sure that the community is fed and this response to this crisis is an example of the benefit of that work and when you think about it as you're going through the process of working with people and getting to know them and understanding them better you're certainly not thinking well this is what we're going to need when when the covid-19 happens no you're just going <laughs> right. these are the right people they're allies and and they're they're people who are involved that need to be part of the solution and all of a sudden boom something like this happens and it comes together it's a very it's a very um it, humbling and rewarding feeling to know that we've developed a, a, um, a network of people who are committed to making food first, folks, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Well, speaking of that, I think it's time for a little food for thought. 1,369,250 people in Michigan are food insecure, according to our Map the Meal Gap data project. Almost 1 million kids are eligible for free and reduced breakfast and lunch at school. 
Food insecurity is like all complex, multifaceted problems. There are degrees of difficulty, awareness, and suffering. But when it comes to kids, all of it, any level of it, our close proximity to it, that is food insecurity, is unacceptable and should not be tolerated by any moral, ethical, or just society. We Americans are a devout people. We are Christian in many stripes. We are Muslim, Jewish, Eastern, and a host of other belief systems. We are Gnostic, agnostic, and atheist. We are different, but the same. Devoted to a set of teachings, inspired by words, but yet we are stopped in our tracks whenever any one of those books fall open, and they do fall to the page that instructs us to clearly feed the poor. Jew and Gentile, Christian and otherwise, everyone we worship, from God himself, Jesus his son, Muhammad the prophet, or Gandhi the teacher, all enjoin us to feed the poor. From Confucius to Constantine, from Aristotle to Abraham Lincoln, and from the Roosevelts to the Bushes and beyond, yes, even today, we are commanded, instructed, and warned to feed the poor. It does not matter to me if you believe or not, if you follow or falter. There is no excuse for us to disobey and not feed the poor. So who are the poor? Anyone with less than you or me, that's who the poor is. By the way, there are no qualifiers in those commands. There are no exceptions that state, but their parents should. You are right. But what someone else doesn't do does not absolve me from what I should and can do. So until next week, pandemic or not, in Michigan, it should always be food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state.